verses 1 through 11, Mark 11, 1 through 11. And uh, if you happen to turn there, you will notice that uh, many of your translations, even the ESV translation, will speak of this as the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday. Now, how is it that uh, when I began preaching in the Gospel of Mark, eons ago, how is it that when I sat down the first week of uh, December, I mean January, and planned the messages for this uh, winter and spring, that the actual passage that I would come to on Palm Sunday would be the Palm Sunday triumphal passage itself? Just luck. Just luck. Um, in fact, the way I planned this out uh, was not in anticipation at all of, of traveling uh, the first weekend of March. And so this message was supposed to be preached last Sunday. But in God's providence, uh, being gone to visit our grandchildren, uh, it moved this message to this particular Sunday. So here we are, Palm Sunday, um, reading the passage that historically is known as the Palm Sunday Triumphal Entry Text. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with twelve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your providence we come to this passage today, and we would ask that in your grace and mercies toward us, you would give us such a measure of your Holy Spirit that we can understand the significance of this passage in the life of our Savior, and what this means in terms of the beginning of that fateful week, the last week of Christ's earthly life and ministry. And so, Lord, give us grace to hear and give us hearts to understand and enable us to derive spiritual food from your word so that we might grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might live lives that would be pleasing to you in every respect, and that we might, with respect to our lives in this world, increasingly prove to be salt and light to this generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story that we've just read begins on Sunday. It's the beginning of the Passover week. And the Passover, of course, was the most important memorial time that God had ever given to Israel. 
Uh, God commanded them to observe this entire week, climaxing in the Passover meal toward the end of the week. All of it was in remembrance of God's great deliverance of of the Israelites uh, out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So every year, thousands upon thousands of of Israelites uh, all throughout uh, Judea and Galilee would be pilgrims coming to the city of Jerusalem. And so they would live either in the city or surrounding the city during that week so they could participate in all the things that would go on during Passover week. Some of these pilgrims also would come from all over the Roman Empire. Uh, those Jews who lived in the, uh, the diaspora uh, would generally try to make at least one trip during their lifetime back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover there. Now, the church has called this particular Sunday Palm Sunday, uh, named this way because the Passover pilgrims would cut palm branches and spread them on the roadway that descends from the Mount of Olives uh, on into Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands who were following Jesus uh, there who had camped out on the outskirts of the city, then thousands who were coming out of the city itself, all together were covering the road as Jesus himself uh, was riding into Jerusalem. Uh, the day also marks the first day of the last week of Christ's earthly life and ministry. Now, what's interesting is here we are beginning at chapter 11. The Gospel of Mark goes all the way through uh, chapter 16. So we have a full third of the Gospel of Mark devoted to this very last week of the life of Christ. Now, that's not unusual. The other writers, Gospel writers themselves, devote the majority of any particular topic or theme, they devote the majority of their material to the last week of Christ, which means, of course, that our understanding of this last week has great significance with respect to the gospel message. Now, in addition to be called Palm Sunday, uh, the entrance by Jesus into Jerusalem has also been known as the triumphal entry. Yet that description is highly ironic since the thousands of pilgrims who are giving such honor to Jesus on this Sunday will by Friday morning be also part of that great multitude that would shout out to Pontius Pilate to have Jesus crucified. Now, it's that reversal of perspective which makes this day so significant. Because on the one hand, there's a definite, correct recognition of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. On the other hand, five days later, there is the rejection of Jesus on Good Friday morning. So the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem is all about the Jewish people, as well as the Jewish leaders, having a clear understanding that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah of God. He is the promised one that they've been looking forward to for ages and ages. So, so what's the main point as we think about this passage? What's the main lesson? It's essentially this. The praise of Jesus as the Messiah is pointless. Where there's no commitment to the true purpose of his coming. Now let's say that again. The praise of Jesus is pointless without a true commitment to the purpose of his coming. Jesus is not honored at all where his most significant service is rejected or denied. Now, before we get into this, I just want you to realize uh, 
that this is an indictment against every evangelical church that doesn't make the cross of Jesus and the dying of Christ for us the center of its ministry. Do you see what I'm saying? It's a great indictment against the liberal church that has denied that what Jesus did on the cross has any saving of sin significance at all. A hundred years ago, they demoted Jesus to just a great moral teacher. And now they question that he was a great moral teacher. But what is a travesty is for those churches who claim to be Bible-believing, who instead of giving the people of God the heart of the gospel again and again and again, treat the Bible as though it's some kind of manual for how you can have your best life now. As opposed to recognizing that the message you and I need every day and every hour of every day is that God sent his son into the world to be the savior of sinners. And we, with the Apostle Paul, should be able to say, of which we are the foremost. So, what's the main point of this passage? Again, the praise of Jesus is pointless where there's no commitment to the true purpose of his coming. We don't honor Jesus if we don't honor the real mission of Christ to go to the cross to be the Savior of sinners. So, our objective this morning is to see how this vital truth is worked out in the happenings of this story. So, we're considering the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. That's the main idea. We can see it from three perspectives. We can see it in terms of the provision for this entrance. We can see it from the standpoint of the posture of this entrance. We can see it as the climax, the purpose of this entrance. Now, I alliterated just to prove again that I'm a Presbyterian pastor who's plagued with this sense of always alliterating every point I can possibly present to you. Again, the big truth. Pointless to praise Jesus unless we see him through the cross of what he's done for his people. Now, in the first place then, the provision for this entrance. Um, What's interesting is that this aspect of the triumphal entry story covers the first six verses. This is more than half of Mark's description of this entire story. So 1 through 11, you've got the entire story. The first six verses deal with the provision for the entrance. Uh, Mark spends half of his words describing how the donkey colt is acquired and provided for Jesus to ride upon. So the amount of detail here indicates that this part of the story has great significance. Uh, and the first aspect of that significance is this. Jesus knows that in the village ahead, there was a colt available, and that it's never been ridden upon. Jesus knows this. Secondly, Jesus knows that when he sends his disciples, they're going to be questioned as to why they're taking this colt away from where it's been hitched to uh, the front of this house. So he gives them the words that are going to fully satisfy those who are going to question what the disciples are doing. Now, 
what this tells us is that nothing is happening here that is not exactly as it should be. The providence of God is truly governing everything that is happening, and Jesus is fully aware of everything that must take place, everything that will take place. Now, I want us to think about why that's such an important perspective for the disciples. Think back to what Jesus had said to them uh, no more than a few weeks at the most earlier. Uh, We find this in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. This is the third time Jesus says to his disciples what's going to happen to him when he goes to Jerusalem. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So it's very clear to the disciples, they're now going into this dangerous enemy territory. Jesus has told them that here in Jerusalem he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to be put to death. The message of danger and death is very clear to them. Now the part about the resurrection, they clearly don't get But the part about the danger and death, they do understand. And so, traveling with Jesus, they are in a great state of anxiety and concern and fear. Yet, this this whole part of this entry into Jerusalem, the provision of the donkey colt, this is a message of the disciples. They need this message. They need to know that Jesus knows exactly what is happening. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. And that God has all of this under his sovereign control. Now, you and I can't exactly draw a parallel to our lives and what Jesus was facing and what the disciples were going going through. But we can say that this analogy, the journey of life that all of us are on will always have challenges that seem to exceed our resources. It will always have difficulties that will seem to be beyond our ability to handle. There will always be trouble that we really don't want to face. And we will see these things happening, and, and they will, they will, they, sometimes they will surprise us. And what is our result to those kinds of things? Fear? Distress? We're troubled? And, and our first prayers to God are not, Lord, I give you thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for us in Christ Jesus. No, our first response in situations like that is to find ourselves fearful and wondering, what is God doing? If God knew what he was doing with his own son, he knows what he's doing with you. He knows what he's doing with your life. 
if he knew what he was doing in sending his son into the worst experience a human being could ever experience, the sinless Son of God being betrayed and experiencing everything he experienced, plus sending his son to die on the cross to bear the weight of the sins of the world. If God knew what he was doing, he knows what he's doing with your life. You can trust him. You can trust him. He knows what he's doing with your life. The second key element in the story is, is really the posture of the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. And this is given to us in verses 7 through 10. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that had been cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David Hosanna in the highest. Now, what we see in this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem this way is a very public entrance. And so we ought to think about that for a moment. We ought to see that this is an entirely significant change from every other way that Jesus related to the public and the multitudes in, in all of his ministry, Judea and Galilee. When Jesus was traveling, when Jesus was teaching throughout his ministry, we often saw that Jesus moved away from the crowds. Jesus often took his disciples into some kind of retreat mode, some kind of place to get away from the crowds, because his popularity seemed to be getting out of hand. His popularity seemed to be even interfering with the ministry goals that, that he needed to follow. So this event is significant because it's an entire reversal to the pattern that Christ has previously presented. Jesus is making a very public entrance. He's no longer hiding his presence, nor is he avoiding public recognition. If you think back to the gospel stories, how often did Jesus say to someone, don't tell anyone, but go? He'd say to the demons, don't, <laughs> and they wouldn't. Uh, he would quiet everyone who had a keen perception of who he was. But now it's entirely the opposite. Jesus is allowing this public recognition. He's allowing the Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's allowing blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. He's permitting all of this. Yet, in the midst of that very public message which is sending a great message of who Jesus is, the way he comes into Jerusalem is designed to be the proper way in which he is supposed to be seen as the Messiah. In essence, his actions here are speaking much louder than any words he could possibly express. And what that is, is he rides into Jerusalem on a young donkey colt. Symbolic significance connected to this. If Jesus had ridden in on a horse, that kind of animal in the ancient world would have conveyed something of a military or political conquest. 
a conquering king or a military commander would have ridden in upon a large and powerful horse as an animal to symbolize the coming of strength and power, the coming of conquering, uh, the coming of conquest. In contrast, Jesus rides in on a donkey, and a donkey compared to a horse. Not even a donkey, a young colt. And not even a young colt. It's a young colt that's never been ridden before. That speaks an entirely different message in terms of the entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus was not coming as some kind of conqueror in any worldly sense. He is not coming into Jerusalem as some great show of strength in the way the world would represent strength and power. Further, though, the symbolism here is that prophecy is being fulfilled. There is a messianic prophecy that specifically says that Israel shall see its king coming upon a young foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is the key to how Jesus enters Jerusalem. He has certainly come as the king. He is Israel's messianic king. But he comes in the posture of complete humility. Now, it's that humility that has been consistently the theme of Jesus' life and ministry. It's entirely contrary to the world's approach to leadership, to power, to influence. It's an upside-down kind of entrance. Yet it's completely consistent, it's completely right-side-up with respect to Jesus' own teaching and ministry. Because what did he say to his disciples? At the climax of teaching them about real leadership in the kingdom of God, he said, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this posture of humility is necessary. Christ must come in this humble manner. Because what stands before Jesus is the way of the cross. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna in the highest. They're thinking about the Messiah differently than Jesus is thinking about himself. Hosanna means uh, save now or save we pray. So in, in, in proclaiming this, they're saying, God, save us, save us now. But they're thinking of something very different than what Jesus is thinking. They're, they're wanting salvation from Rome. They want their political emancipation. They want their land to be free of occupying Roman forces. That was their thinking. So their enthusiasm for this coming of Jesus failed to embrace those prophetic, messianic statements of the Old Testament that pointed to the Messiah's coming in terms of suffering and death. They failed to reckon with 
the whole substance of Isaiah 53. In which in that passage it reads, All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Yet that's the message that Jesus is presenting coming into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. The message that he did not come to conquer. He did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, Jesus is not truly honored and Christ is not truly praised where the most significant aspect of who he is and what he has come to do is either rejected or denied. It isn't to make life better that you have trusted in Christ. It is to make life eternal. Paul said this, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If in Christ we have hoped for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we think the Christian life is about this life, primarily, we are most to be pitied. If we do not recognize that Jesus came to save us, not from the circumstances and struggles and trials of this world, if we don't recognize that Jesus came to save each and every one of us from ourselves, we have not understood the point of Jesus coming. How long do you need to live before you begin to see that your greatest enemy in life has always been yourself? And the older we get, the more and more we see it. No one causes me to sin. I sin. No one causes me to react to the troubles I face in a bad way. I react to the troubles I face in a bad way. No one causes me to be harsh or mean-spirited to my cat. I would never be that way to Julie. No one causes me to be those ways in which our sinfulness shows up. No one except me. Jesus didn't die for us because of what other people did to us. Jesus died for us because of what we have actually done against other people and against God. Christ is not truly honored. He's not truly believed in. We're his mission the cross is not properly respected or understood. Lastly, the purpose of his coming, the purpose of his entrance. Look, had Jesus desired, he could have entered Jerusalem quietly, even secretly. He, he had done this before. 
But this very public entrance, besides it being a fulfillment of prophecy, tells us that there was a necessity in Jesus coming into Jerusalem this way. The necessity was connected with the ultimate purpose of his coming into the world, and that was to die. Now, in the first place, in order for this to be properly done in the way that God had ordained, it was absolutely necessary that the people of Israel recognize Jesus as the Christ. After three and a half years of ministry, uh, during which Jesus demonstrated his authority in terms of his teaching, his authority to forgive sin, his authority over all the powers of, of the creation, his authority and power over the demonic realm, his authority and power to heal all manner of diseases, even to raise the dead. After all of these divine miracles, as well as the fact that Jesus was able to live without sin at all, it was now time for Israel to recognize who was walking among them. It was time to make clear that the people of Israel, to the people of Israel, that their Messiah had come. And that's exactly what's going on. The great multitudes are shouting, as we read in verses 9 and 10, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic reference. They add something that's not in the Old Testament psalm in terms of a particular statement, but it's all of the messianic psalms coming together. They say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's exactly what the Messiah was bringing. The kingdom of, a father's, of his father David. Hosanna in the highest. Lord, save us to the uttermost. So, as we mentioned before, these words are based in Psalm 118. Prophetic elements about the Messiah, about Christ. So, what we see here is that these pilgrim worshipers, these pilgrim to the Passover, they're connecting what is stated in Psalm 118 with the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. They're making that connection, which means they are recognizing that Jesus is the Christ. It means that they're recognizing that Jesus is the one that the builders have rejected, who is now the chief cornerstone. Their, their, their minds are going to all the statements in Psalm 118 that reflected upon the Messiah. They know that this is the day that the Lord has made. That this is the day that they are to rejoice and to be glad in. This is the day that they pray, O oh Lord, save us. And that salvation is to be found in the one who is coming. So the Israelites know, the multitude of Israel know, that, that Jesus has been rejected by the builders, that is, the religious leaders of Israel. They know that they've constantly opposed Jesus, but the prophecy says that even the one who has been rejected is, in fact, the chief cornerstone. And, and they're singing the Hosannas, O Lord, save us. So they're connecting Jesus with Israel's salvation. And, and they add, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. All the elements of there that certify the fact that the Israelites, the multitudes are recognizing in Jesus that he is the Christ. He's the promised one. This is their admission, who Jesus is. Now, at the same time, God's purposes 
in Christ coming in this way are connected to what was going to happen Friday morning, Good Friday morning, when Christ was rejected. The public entrance of Jesus, the public recognition of Christ, sets the stage for the public rejection of Christ, Good Friday morning, by the multitudes. Let's frame this in a particular way that the New Testament does. Uh, There's a story, a nativity story, by the way, in the Gospel of Luke, which predicts that this is the way it's going to be. Now, this is the story of Jesus uh, being brought to the temple by Mary and Joseph in order to do all that the law prescribes shortly after Jesus is born. And when they're at the temple, they come upon this godly, godly man named Simeon. And so we read this in Luke chapter 2, 25 to 35. There was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, all that sounds wonderful, glorious. It sounds completely positive. But then he goes on to say, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Nothing more clearly reveals the deceitfulness of the fallen human heart than what takes place between Sunday and Good Friday. Jesus enters Jerusalem to all of the praise and acclamation of the multitudes only five days later to be rejected by these same thousands. On this day, great excitement about Christ. By Friday, the enthusiasm to honor Jesus is replaced by a desire to do away with him. Why? The answer is this. When God shows up and he's not everything that we want him to be, we will do away with him. When God shows up and he doesn't conform to our ideas of how God should be, we will reject him. That is the very heart of sin. It is wanting God, wanting Christ, to be and to do what we desire instead of submitting to Him. Palm Sunday 
tragically celebrates the Jesus they wanted rather than the Jesus they truly needed. Where does that lead? Fifty days later, we have the next big memorial ceremony that Israel celebrates. It's the day of Pentecost. The multitudes have again gathered in Jerusalem. So listen to these words, which the Apostle Peter preaches on that day, taken from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22, selectively reading crucial verses, so we get the heart of what Peter says then. Men of Israel, great multitudes have gathered on that day because of the things that are going on. They're surrounding the Apostles. Peter's the spokesman. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now that's the message of Palm Sunday, the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. People want God and Jesus to save them from the politics of the country that they don't like, from all the troubles of life here and now. But what we truly need is Jesus to save us from ourselves. So prayers and praises to Jesus are pointless where there's no commitment to the true purpose of his coming. There is no Christ without the cross. There is no Savior without the acknowledgement of our sin. We need to trust in the one who came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, may it ever be with us that we would never think about Jesus without thinking about why he came into this world. That we would recognize that our great Savior 
served us in dying for our sin, rising for our justification, and even now interceding for us at your right hand, granting us his Holy Spirit that we might live for the one who lived and died for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.